0: Hello, everyone. I'm Cesara J. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, before I introduce the next guest, I want to give a wonderful shout out to Dr. Natalie Millman. Dr. Natalie Millman is the director of the Educational Technology Leadership Program at the George Washington University in the Washington, D.C. area. She's also a faculty in the PhD program for human technology collaboration. She's also a professor of educational technology. The reason why I really appreciate Dr. Millman, well, I have actually probably a thousand reasons, but one of the ones that I appreciate her regarding today is because she sent me an email actually introducing me to Dora Daniels a couple of years ago. And ever since then, Dora Daniel, who is our guest speaker today, is, she's been such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful colleague, but also she's become my friend now. Uh, Dora speaks a lot about, she's a human resources professional who was very candid about the politics that happen in the human resources field. She started out as an employee in human resources, and then she decided later to start her own human resources firm. Having her own human resources firm gave her the flexibility and the freedom to really be very candid with individual clients and organizations as a client to really advise them on what's best. She didn't have the, the, kind, of, the kind of pressure in politics that employees in human resources have in certain organizations. So it allows her to be very, very brutally honest, although brutal is not the proper adjective for her. She's very professional, very candid, very honest, and comes from a very good place, very good place of integrity. So she's going to talk about the different aspects of human resources and the politics uh, behind human resources and, and maneuvering it from her perspective. So let's go ahead and get right into this week's episode. Everyone, Dora Daniel. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Business Politics 318. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Dora Daniel. First of all, Dora, really quickly, I just want you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So um,
1: I am a 30-year professional in the area of human resources. 15 years ago, I started my consulting practice. You know, quick story, uh, my previous manager used to take me to work, uh, to to lunch, work lunch every year for my work anniversary, and the year that I was 39, I said to him, I said, next year, I'm turning 40 and it's time for me to do my life's work. And he said, capital L, capital W. And I said, Absolutely. And that was the catalyst you know, for me starting my consulting practice. So Live, Work, Learn, Enterprises has gone you know, through some iterations. It was named something else previously, but the goal continues to be the same, which is to optimize performance and learning in organizations. And I do that through the design of total rewards programs, compensation and benefits. I sometimes come into organizations and help them develop their infrastructure uh, and also really help them focus on the whole person, the whole human, bringing that whole human to work. And so as principal of the organization, I've had the benefit and and pleasure and privilege of partnering with a lot of other human resources professionals, technical professionals, women in business, you know, such as yourself, Cesar.
0: Oh, thank you. So question for you. So what kind of In in terms of the the types of roles that you educate in the consultant businesses or or in the different businesses that you consult with, Mm -hmm. are they normally at the executive level? Are they, you know, at the operational level? What kind of people are you usually... I'm dealing with? Okay.
1: So it's interesting you should ask that question because um, the last role I had, a full-time position I had before I went out on my own, I was vice president of human resources for a real estate firm. Um, But what I I did is I grew up in human resources. So I've literally done every facet of human resources with the exception of labor relations over the life of my career. And I built my business on doing those things, those aspects of HR that I enjoy the most. So a lot of times my clients sort of run the gamut. Um, I'm typically having conversations with uh, a CEO or CFO, someone in the C-suite, because they see more systemic issues in an organization that they need to have resolved around performance, around compensation, around looking at their benefits package, around organizational effectiveness, you know, are we structured the right way? A lot of times I'm also working with human resources directors, chief human resources officers, because one of my key areas of expertise is compensation, and oftentimes that expertise doesn't reside in an organization, so they will want to tap into the expertise of an external consultant to bring some objectivity as as well as the specific expertise as well. So it's typically HR directors and above, um, and also uh, folks from the C-suite who are looking at the organization from a broader perspective.
0: And how long have you been in your own business?
1: So as I said earlier, it's been 15 years. This is my 15th year. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that because if someone had said to me 15 years ago, Cesara, you know, would you want to be an entrepreneur or self-employed or you know any of the, the, the titles? I would have said, no, that didn't necessarily interest me. I didn't see myself being that person. But uh, now that I've gotten into it and and being in corporate for some period of time was really the catalyst for that, now I, I don't know what else I would do and so um, this is this is my life's work
0: how cool is that I think that's amazing I do and um, really quickly the way that you and I actually met was uh, we had our chairwoman of our department actually connected you and I together so we originally had no idea who the other person was but someone linked us up together and I think it's been one of the best things ever since.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I feel like it was kismet for sure because, um, you know, our department head, she, I think, looked across the the classes of the individuals who were in the program at GW and she saw where some connections needed to be made. And Cesara, you were instantly one of the people. She said, Dora, you know, I think you need to know, you know, San- Cesara and the work that she does. And, you know, she's such a dynamic woman. And, you know, so you and I, of course, you know, we've been trying to meet face-to-face for the better part of a year. Right. <laughs> In the, the instant that we got together, it was like you are who I should have known. You know, we I thought an instant connection to you, so I really appreciate the fact that you know, Dr. Moman saw that and saw that we needed to be connected. So that's great.
0: I agree with you. Um, okay, so I because you are an HR professional, I I want to start it off with having you to fill in a couple of blanks for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, just generally speaking, when I say this, just what comes to mind. So during a human resources crisis, operational non-managerial employees, so those who don't, you know, who aren't overseeing anyone and aren't managers, who have filed a report, a human resources report, or thought of filing report, but may not have filed one yet, they usually want more blank from human resources professionals. What would you...
1: They, they want advocacy and, and guidance. And I know that the role of human resources in an organization is changing. Human resources professionals want to be seen as uh, having that seat at the table, if you will. So they want the organization to see them as strategic and as uh, you know, executives who understand the business, but employees, very in, in large part, still really do Cesar, see human resources professionals as their advocates. And, and I hear that today, even with the most sophisticated millennials and now Gen Zs that are showing up in the workplace, they all still see human resources as, as an advocate for them. And so they're looking for advocacy. They're looking for someone who can help them speak their truth, Um, help them sort of navigate a difficult situation, figure out what are the right next steps to take. And and in particular, you know, I feel like my brand of advocacy is somewhat unique because I take the position of when you come to me, you know, you're now my client and I I treat you as my internal client. And I wanna talk to you first about what are you looking for in terms of an outcome? And let's talk about how close I think we can get you to that outcome. And that takes into consideration organizational culture, organizational politics, what we think is mutable and what isn't, and really have an honest conversation about here's what I really think I can do for you. The next step in that is if I don't honestly think I can help you achieve the outcome that you tell me you're looking for, I'm also your advocate in identifying a plan B. And I think that that is where I feel like I stand out with respect to other human resources professionals because inside of organizations, and I know I have the luxury of saying this because I work for myself and not for someone else, Inside organizations, I think there is definitely the expectation of the company that you really speak the company line, if you will. And I don't say that in a disparaging way. They really expect you to encourage the employee to stay, figure out how to work in their ecosystem, and don't encourage them to look outside of the organization to get their needs met. I am not that human resources professional. I, I, I look across the table at the person and say, in this moment for this situation, I am here for you. And so you tell me what kind of outcome you want to have and I'm going to be that honest broker and I'm going to be authentic with you to say, I can help you achieve that outcome or I can't help you achieve that outcome. And if I don't think I can, I will continue to be your advocate, but I'll be your advocate for helping you to find that next best place for you, even if it isn't inside of this organization. Oh, wow. So that's important to me because people need to know that someone hears them and sees them and has an interest in what their needs are, that they're not just talking about what's best for the organization. It's always gonna be a human resources professional's uh, responsibility to protect the interests of the organization, but you don't have to do that at the expense of the employee.
0: That is excellent. And I really do want to delve further into that um, because there are people who have gone through HR cases and when all is said and done they felt like the HR representative really was just advocating for the corporation and that is it so I think what you're saying is very very important. So I want to get back to that and just really go further and pick your brain about that Mm -hmm. Um, until then I I have two more questions that I want you to fill in the blank. And then we're going to go back to what you're talking about as advocating, even if it means you directing them, you know, to someone external to the company. Mm -hmm. So we talked about those people who are in operational roles and they, they, they're not in management. They're just, you know, your your operational people next during a human resources crisis managers, who have filed a report or thought of filing a report and haven't yet usually want more blank from human resources professionals.
1: So so these are the individuals that are looking for guidance because um, if they themselves actually happen to be uh, the person that is the offender, um, they want guidance on, wow, I'm, I'm in a role of leadership and I found myself in hot water, how do I navigate this? Um, if they are responding to one of their staff members having filed the complaint, you know, whether they were the offender or it was someone else, they're looking for guidance in terms of how do I maintain the relationship with my peers? How do I maintain the relationship with the organization? How do I live up to my responsibility as a manager in this organization? And then by definition, a representative of this organization and still do the right things in this process. So they really need you know, very close and sort a of step-by-step guidance in terms of walking through the difficult situation that they might find themselves in. What are some of the right things to say? what's their role in this process? Um, how should they be interacting you know themselves either with the employee or you know as the person who uh, is managing the person who filed the report or as, as the individual who's filed the report themselves you know how, how should I be carrying myself you know throughout all of this and you know what, what's the right thing to do? what steps? So I do actually find that with managers, I am actually outlining more steps for them than I am for a non-managerial employee. Um, Because they're in that position, Cesar, where they hold what I call the in-charge card. And so, you know, ostensibly, they should have a lot more answers and resources at their disposal than a non-management employee would, as well as a broader view of the organization. And hopefully, if the organization has promoted or hired well, they should be further along in sort of their professional evolution, if you will, in terms of how they see things in the organization. So if, if I've got a manager who either finds himself, him or herself, working with an employee who has filed a a report of some kind, or they happen to be that individual that needs to do that, they typically need more concrete steps in terms of here's what you do first, here's what you do second, here's what you do third. Um, And they also, though, take on, in some respects, that internal client role as well, because uh, they need um, some advocacy, but I feel like not as much as an employee who isn't in a position of authority.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, so we talked about um, operational ones who are not managers. We talked about managers. Now let's talk about executive leadership. So during a human resources crisis, executive leadership who have filed a report or who are thinking about filing a report usually want more blank from human resources professionals.
1: They want advice. And, you know, advice, I think in my mind, in these scenarios that you've outlined, advice is a bit different from guidance because advice is, you know, you know, if they're talking to me, you know, hypothetically, Dora, you are the expert, you know, you, you understand this, the situation from all different angles. What is your advice about the best way forward to make sure that, The organization is protected because, and they are looking at that first because in terms of being an executive leadership, they have that first responsibility, you know, whether it feels like the right thing or not, their first responsibility is to the organization. So what do we do to protect the organization? What do we do to make sure that this process unfolds in a equitable manner and treats people with, you know, respect and and dignity? Um, And then what do we do if things don't go well? You know, what are our options? So they're really looking to tap into, the true consultant aspect of a human resources professional's role in terms of you know, we, we have the technical expertise, we have the tools in the toolkit, we know what the various options could be and also know what the potential remedies might be, and we also know what the alternatives might be should the whole scenario sort of go south, and you have to look at some other opportunities. And it's also talking to executive leadership about potential exposures. Um, and having them consider all of the variables so they are really looking for the human resources professional to operate in an advisory capacity helping them to understand the full big picture and considering every aspect of the situation
0: oh that's good that's good now i want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of advocating for an employee even if it means advising them to go somewhere external to the company. So I want to take us back. Let's take us back 15 plus years in your career. Let's go Mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Now, usually there's an impetus for people to start their own organizations. Mm -hmm. You and I were talking previously just about experiences that made you say, oh no, wait a minute. I don't like the way this is going. So I'm really starting my own business so I can control more of the narrative and the outcome of what happens. So could you tell me an instance that you recall, and of course you don't have to call out companies or names if you don't want to, but just kind of give me an an incident where you as as an HR professional was an employee of some company and you may have seen something that was borderline unethical or all the way unethical as an HR professional and you said wait a minute this is not good and it didn't put you in a good position either do you have a story like that that you could share? Wow and and, you
1: know the interesting part about that is Cesar is that I have lots of those kinds of stories and so you know so so just to sort of do it for context you know my last um, role as the vice president of a of a of an organization, vice president of human resources for an organization. Um, I think that the challenges there came into, had to do with more of uh, the priorities that were established in the business. And I made a decision, that was the catalyst for me starting my business in terms of, okay, you know what? If I'm going to be a human resources professional, I want to structure my consulting practice around the things that I have noticed that the organization places its priorities on. You know, so so that was one piece. Since that time, I have had situations in my consulting practice where I have acted as the interim human resources head, and during that time, it did two things for me. It helps sort of keep me abreast of what actually happens real time in organizations. Two, it reminds me of why I became a consultant. Right. <laughs> right. And, and three, it it helped to reinforce for me that there are some things that still need to be addressed in terms of, you know, the human resources function itself and how we are expected to operate in the organizational space. So the, the scenario I'm thinking about, the one that was the catalyst for me starting my own business, um, you know, there was an individual who uh, was involved in some illegal activity. And... Uh, I came back from a doctor's appointment back to my office and that individual um, had had an interaction with local law enforcement authorities and was no longer on site. And so for about a week, we couldn't find that individual. And once we realized where they were and, you know, where they were being held in terms of Of the local um, holding facilities. Then the conversations were around well, what was, what was, what law was broken? What was the infraction? And um, it, it really was sort of heart wrenching because I had worked very closely with that individual and knew them and knew that they were very committed to their work and to the organization. They had just made a series of bad choices that sort of got them into a scenario that just, Didn't work for them, and so finally, at the end of all of that, um, how the organization responded to that, I actually think was pretty positive. But the individual had so many sort of um, external influences that 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 impacted how they did their job. It made it difficult for them to do their job the way that I needed them to, and so they ended up leaving the organization. And um, you know, we had unemployment claims filed. That's a very unsavory process. The the interesting part about the unemployment process is that um, the honest is on the employer to determine or to to position whether or not the the person should get unemployment benefits. And that's not like a little known fact. We don't make the determination, the employer doesn't make the determination, but the unemployment commissions are looking for some kind of statement from the employer to say, here are all the reasons why that individual should not get unemployment. Cesar, when you think about the, the value of unemployment, which I don't know, could range anywhere from $200 to, I don't know, maybe it's four or $500 a week now, could It could be more, relative to what that salary that person is making, um, it is not, it is not um, reasonable that you would want to deny that person unemployment because it's such a paltry amount relative to the money that they were already making. But the posture of the organization was such that we don't want to pay unemployment unless we have to because it raises the employer's unemployment taxes, but they have to pay against unemployment tax you know, in terms of a contribution. So every time we file a claim, they look at your claims experience and then your tax uh, contribution gets increased commensurate with the number of claims that you filed. So, so there's, there's incentive around that. So that piece was challenging for me because, um, you know, personally, I would say yes to every claim. But uh, in these scenarios, um, if your organization wants you to be the person that sets forth the reasons why they shouldn't get it, that might be misaligned with your own personal feelings about that situation. So you know Whether that individual knew that or not, they came to their unemployment hearing, which is also another unfortunate uh, sort of convening, with just sort of a scenario that showed them sort of in a, a less than a positive light. So it was, you know, big bad employer against, you know, tiny single employee. So they brought children and there was discussions and, and, and they ruled in favor of the employee had it been my decision, they would have gotten the benefit anyway. But two things happened. One, the fact that that person felt like they sort of had to create a scenario so that they seemed sympathetic to the commission was was troubling for me. And then the other piece troubling for me was that the organization was taking the position of, you know, when and where we can, we don't want to pay unemployment benefits. So, so, So there was tension there in terms of, What's our role goal around, around what, we're, what are we trying to accomplish here? What are the outcomes? Um, what's important? How are we trying to treat employees? What kind of experience do we want them to have with this organization? Now, granted, that was you know a decade and a half ago. So at that time, Cesar, people were not having a conversation about employee experience. That's sort of like a new concept that we have lots of conversation about now. But when I think back on that, that was probably one of the most defining moments for me in terms of, okay... If I'm if I'm going to do my life's work and, and, and I am going to do work that is aligned with who I am and is authentic to who I am I want to be uh have as few of these kinds of experiences as possible where an employee feels like their only option is to sort of create a persona for themselves that makes them more sympathetic to get a benefit that is marginal and nominal at best or work with an employer whose first position is, we want to figure out a way not to pay versus to pay. So.
0: Wow. I think I have so many thoughts going in my head because I think you're, you have such a powerful stance on as an HR professional. I can say that I highly respect your stance in the human resources field. I've seen a lot of, of investigations and cases go through and in, 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 in those scenarios, it's been very unfortunate what has taken place. So it is, it is an honor to hear someone like you to say what you're saying and believe the way that you believe. And then it's a blessing for you to even have your own business. So that way you can actually take a stronger stance. I believe you were able to take a stronger stance in what you believe and in terms of integrity. That's one thing that I think is very important for me is that when people and some of the things that you're talking about is a matter of games of business politics. Mm-hmm.
1: It is, it is. And, and Cesara, I will say that yeah, I've been working with a leadership coach and we've been having a conversation about you know some messages that I want to get out and who might my audience be for those messages. And it's sort of gone back and forth for me and sort to tie back into the question you asked me earlier about what does my client group look like I am keenly aware of the fact that human resources professionals who sit at a, at a manager director vice president role in an organization they have a very um, uh, sensitive tightrope to walk they, right. they both represent the organization and they are expected to represent the employee, and how do you do that? And so depending on what kind of organization you work for and what kind of leadership you have, you really, the quality of your life as an HR professional is defined by that. I've been really fortunate that in most of my interactions, I've had very strong leadership and they have supported me in my work to try to be um, an honest broker, a neutral party in as much as you can. But in those situations where people are not able to do that, to your point, I had to sort of had to default to my own sort of base value system around this. And that was what But that is. I will not be a talking head when you, when you talk to me and when you interact with me, I'm going to, you know, give the, be, be square with you, authentic with you, give you the, the, the true story um, as I know it. And I won't, Sugarcoat. I don't want to insult another professional and adult intelligence by giving them sort of a whole, you know, set of like jargon or you know, just a, 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 again a sort of a party line. And they're like, really? Um, it's like I want to talk to you like the professional and the smart person that you are. So, so I start there as here's my commitment to you. I'm going to be as honest as I possibly can be, and I'm going to give you all of your options and let you know all of the options that are available to you. And to be able to do that effectively, as a human resources professional, you have to have a little bit of detachment. And I think that the HR people who don't have a little bit of detachment run into the problem that you described earlier, Cesar, which is situations where employees have spoken with human resources and they haven't walked away with an outcome that they thought was reasonable because the HR person didn't feel necessarily empowered to be able to have the real conversation as opposed to um, Sort of the the agreed-upon conversation and sometimes those can be two different things And so as I started to message out to HR professionals everywhere I really want them to start thinking about how do you create a professional life for yourself that gives you lots of options so you don't find yourself having to compromise your own personal value system to be able to execute on behalf of the employer that you work for. Oh. It's hugely important. It's hugely important because it's the reason it, it is the thing that stops most HR professionals short of really having the real conversation with an employee when they're faced with the situation. And that actually happens at most levels, I would say, except for the executive leadership level. It it is easier to have that conversation with the executive leadership cohort that you talked about because, again, their mandate is clear, and it, it it is clear but less clear at the managerial level, but it is probably the most ambiguous at the staff level where they have the least amount of information and they have the least amount of power. And those are the people that really need to be presented with all the tools possible for them to be able to make the right kinds of decisions and have the best kind of, of, of outcome you know, from their situation. And many human resources people feel a bit hamstring to be able to provide that because they, maybe they're afraid for their own position. Maybe right. they're looking to move into another role and they're thinking if I guide an employee this way, then I'm going to be seen in a certain kind of light. Um, And for some HR professionals, and I will say this again, I feel like I have a license to say it because I've been in HR for so long. Some don't want the mantle of being the people person. They want to be seen as a business person. I'm of the mind that it's it's, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. Treating your people well, with dignity, with respect, modeling the behaviors that you want them to demonstrate, that's good business because the current statistics show that it takes twice the salary to replace someone that you lose, so you know even if you had a fifty thousand dollar a year employee it's going to take you one hundred thousand dollars to replace them if they leave if they were a good employee, not to mention you know whatever fines or settlements that you might find yourself paying out as a result of whatever that human resources situation was so um, you know I think that there is a way for human resources professionals to care about people and, and be still seen as, as business people if you buy into the belief that treating people well in your organization is good business. And I do feel like in our current work environment here in you know 2019 and the 21st century, and with us having now a multi-generational workforce, people are buying into that more and more. They do believe that having creating a work environment where employees are considered and prioritized and having a, an appreciation for the value of the of the human uh, talent that you have, that now is becoming more and more a part of corporate environments because they understand that they can't achieve their goals, they can't meet their objectives, they cannot provide um, the, the growth to their shareholders uh, unless they have the right kinds of people in the job and those people feel like that their employee experience at their organization is a good one so the tide is shifting but there's still some work to be done
0: oh this is so good this is very good now in terms of people hiring you do you find that businesses bring you on during the inception Um, you know, like during the initiation of a program or an issue, do they really bring you on during the middle or do they bring you on a lot of times when it just seems like it's too late?
1: It's interesting because it sort of depends on the service that they're looking for. If we're talking about compensation, which is a lot of my work where I actually design compensation programs for employers of varying sizes, usually an employer has gotten to about, you know, 50 people And they're thinking, you know, we've just, it's been sort of the wild west for us in terms of how we decide what salary should be paid or we're having attraction and retention issues. We really should take a pulse of the market and see what our job, how our jobs are valued in the marketplace. So they'll bring me into that or they want to codify their program. And so they'll bring me in to do both the market study and to develop um, sort of the framework in terms of how they'll manage pay, how that will get co- communicated to employees and then you know what types of decisions they'll make about pay and and rewards in general over time. Sometimes I'm working with a smaller organization that says you know what we're not ready to put together a full blown compensation program, but we do have some questions about what's the value of, key roles in our department or key roles in our organization. And can we get an assessment of that? And so oftentimes for a small organization that might have anywhere from, you know, 12 to 20 to 40 employees, you know, they just say, you know, we just want a market check Can you just benchmark you know, five or 10 positions for us in the marketplace, just so we can understand whether or not we're paying competitively. And then as we grow and evolve, we may look at something more formal later. So those are the folks who usually are responding to an external market condition. Again, either we've we've lost some key people or we're having a difficult time uh, attracting key people. Other times the organization may be going into new markets or they may be going through some kind of, Reengineering, and they'll ask for an organizational assessment and and i've worked with a lot of clients in that capacity as well where typically something has happened their market has changed um they've gotten some feedback from their their benefactors which could be uh donors private donors federal government um or they're trying to get into new businesses so wherever their infusion of cash is coming from that infusion is being halted or 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 restricted because the people who provide the the dollars and, and those infusions of cash, you're saying, you know, I, I want to understand how your organization is working and whether or not you are going to be able to achieve the outcomes you said you could achieve for me. And, and I'm having some concerns about whether or not your organization is structured appropriately to do that. And so in those scenarios, I will come in and conduct an organizational assessment where we're looking at everything from who's in a leadership role, how those roles are structured, Who's, who works in each department, what those roles do? Does everybody sort of have all the tools they need to be able to get the job done effectively as the organization exists today? But more importantly, do they have those tools to be able to do the job effectively based on the, or where the organization says it wants to be? Because oftentimes organizations will have you know, some very lofty visions about we're here and we wanna to get to there, but do you have the necessary foundation and resources? And that would be the people the technology the processes the right positions and the right people in the positions to actually be able to do that so um, startups typically don't look for uh, for assistance from a consultant the kind of consulting consultant that I am because they're thinking we're offering other things. You know, it's the all the psychic income of the startup environment. We might be offering you some kind of equity, what have you. But as they mature, they find that they need to tap into an external expert to get some of their questions answered as well. And it could run the gamut of: Are we offering the right kinds of benefits? Or are we offering the right kind of compensation? Or how do we deal with a? Um, uh, remote workforce that you know might be working from their homes, or a uh, multi-location workforce, or now more recently a global workforce. You know, how do we reconcile the whole work experience for someone who lives here, or lives in Germany, or lives in the Caribbean, or you know lives in South America? And trying to answer those questions and take into consideration you know some of the local talent market issues as well. So it depends on where they are in their life cycle. What problems or challenges they might have been experiencing as a business, as to when they bring me in and, and, and or ask for advice, you know, from of a consultant from a consultant that does the kind of work that I do.
0: Have you ever felt like a customer or a not yet customer? has wanted to bring you in to basically justify decisions that they've already made? <laughs> That's
1: such an interesting question. I'm so glad you asked it, Zara. You're very insightful. Um, I find that with the organizational assessments, typically a client is looking for an external sanity check. They know what they want to do. They're just looking for some external validation around, should we do this? And so for me, again, in in this whole idea of, you know, being able to be as authentic as I possibly can be, when I give them a proposal for that type of work, I try to make it really clear about what I can do and what I can't do. I'm not the person that's going to come in and tell you who you should hire. You know, that's a leadership and a management decision. And if they hold that role, they've really got to have the, um, professional courage, you know, to be able to do that. I can talk to you about where there might be redundancies or uh, there might be opportunities for streamlining things or where technology might be a better solution than, you know, a person. But at the end of the day, it's still the organization's responsibility to make those decisions about who stays and who goes. And so I do try to be very careful about that because I do find that sometimes you'll find a potential client that they've got some pretty specific ideas about what they want to do in this. So they want someone external to validate that for them. And I've actually been in situations where I've seen employers that they have an idea about the direction in which they want to go. Once I'm done with my assessment, I come back with a very different set of recommendations that are not aligned with the direction that they'd like to take. And, and, and so they don't take my recommendations and they end up doing Uh, whatever it is that they wanted to do in the first place. And I'm not sure, because by that time, I'm out of the engagement. So I don't know how that all plays out. But I'm also thinking about exposure, because, again, you're dealing with the C-suite, you want to talk about what might be those potential external factors that could impact the long-term viability of your business. And so I have a responsibility as a consultant to talk about those things. But sometimes I've met, you know, either clients or potential clients who, just want to do what they just want to do. And if I as the consultant did not provide them with the answers they were looking for, they don't implement my recommendations. And so I have to learn to accept that. But the thing that keeps me sort of grounded is that at least I entered into the process in an authentic way and told them what I thought my best recommendations were and didn't deviate from that. Um, Because I feel like I can sort of hold solid over time in terms of how I engage with a client If if I stay constant and consistent with the way that I interact with clients when when I'm faced with one of those kinds of situations, so.
0: How do you legally cover yourself? So in in terms of, let's say a couple couple of scenarios, like number one, let's say that you're in a position where you do have to advise someone who has filed a report to actually go outside of the organization for their plan B. Mm -hmm. Um, Or let's say, you know, or you have um, one where, maybe the organization as a whole is going through something and you you're advising them because maybe what they're going through is high risk or high profile. Mm -hmm. How do you as an entrepreneur, how do you as an HR professional cover yourself legally?
1: So uh, great question again. Um, So I start with the law. I mean, that sort of is immutable, as far as I'm concerned. It's let's talk about the federal employment laws and/ or the state and jurisdictional and law, uh, employment laws that are in place, you know, where you have your headquarters in place of business. Because, you know, regardless of whether or not you want to do certain things, here are the laws that are in place that support certain actions. And so as an employer, and again, long-term sustainability of your business. If you want to be in business for the long term and you want to minimize the amount of legal exposure and potentially, um, you know, uh, settlement money, investments that have to be made as a result of that exposure, you'll want to make sure that whatever decisions you are making are consistent with the employment laws that apply to, you know, at the federal level and the jurisdiction in which you live. So, and I put everything in writing. It is a, you know, here's the law here's how your organization is expected to operate relative to that law and um, if there are any areas of, of gray or ambiguity i'm happy to point those out but I also also counsel employers to err on the conservative side and when and where they can align themselves with you know, full compliance so that that protects them later. Because, again, it's, it's that conversation around, I, w- I want to help protect your organization. And the best way to do that is to follow the, the letter of the law. And so I'm, I'm starting there first. And then, second, going to their internal policies. You know, I've had organizations who, you know, so they've checked the block. They've written an employee handbook. They've had it vetted by an external legal person, legal professional, an employment attorney. And so they've got all the language around equal employment opportunity, non-harassment, you know, discrimination environment, um, you know, uh, the the sort of standard stuff around, you know, no tolerance, no uh, existence of uh, substance abuse and what have you in the workplace, just sort of all the standard stuff. We adhere, you know, to certain laws. and And once you're at, 50 employees, you are virtually on the hook for almost every employment law that's out there. And so that's sort of the, 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 the lever, you know, 50 plus, you pretty much are on the hook for most federal employment laws. Um, so in looking at all of that, then I'll start with their handbook. It's like, so you know what the federal law is, you know what the jurisdictional law is, what did you say in the handbook that you distributed to your employees? These are your own policies you know, she said this probably now three times in like the last three days, there's an adult learning theory uh, that says adults don't argue with their own data. So I sort of go back to your your policy documents, your your handbook documents and say, what did you commit to in your policy documents, your handbook documents about how employees would be treated in this organization and what their avenues for resolution would be, you know, should they bring a scenario up? Because this is what you signed up for. And so in any kind of um, report, readout, ruling, recommendation, I always try to stick with those things, stick with the laws that are known to everyone, and then stick with the organization's own policies, reminding them of what they committed to You know, as an organization in terms of what was important to them. And it's a good way to have a conversation as well when you are dealing with a person who is is the one who has actually been the offender. They're the one who, who um, had the infraction because it's like this is your language, you know. This is what you all agree to as an organization. Um, you know, help me understand why uh, there have been uh, situations of non-adherence to that. And and I feel like other than just sort of the practical piece of being an entrepreneurs and having errors and omissions. Insurance or that general liability coverage that that protects you from you know potential uh, litigation should something not go well, I feel like those practices as a consultant um, protect you when you make your recommendations about what an organization 's next step should be
0: That is great now how often are you required to be on site? You were talking about a global world now in business. How often are you required to be on-site to help a customer throughout this whole process?
1: So in these situations, and, and the on-site piece sort of varies based on the things that they've asked me to do. Um, if I'm dealing with a situation like this, so typically the, the scenario where someone is dealing with an employee relations issue, those come up for me if I have um, engaged in a interim human resources leader role. So you know, I'm their interim head of HR. In some capacity uh, those are what I'm typically dealing with most of the employee relations issues and so just you know for my own work-life balance and sort of state to stay with my commitment to what I want my entrepreneurial life to look like I try to commit to no more than two days on site a week because lots of what I can do for my clients I can do off-site and I typically use that one to two days on site to do all of the interactions that really do um, require a face-to-face discussion or a face-to-face interaction. And thank goodness for technology and you're a tech expert, so you know this, you know, in the absence of being on site, there is Zoom. And so I love, you know, Zoom go-to meeting. And so even if I'm not available to be on site, I'm still able to have a, a human one-to-one connection with you to talk about an issue so that you feel like, you know, you are having the benefit of, you know, visual cues and the interaction of, you know, one person to another. But typically in dealing with these scenarios, um, the most time I've spent on site is is one to two days. And, And sometimes that's actually really good because it's having the conversations about what the issue is and what the next steps might be and what the possible solution set could be. And then me not being there and people having a chance to think about, what's been recommended and sort of let the dust settle on some issues that could be potentially volatile. Me not being there actually gives them time to do that.
0: I think it's great actually, because that's as I'm working with different companies and New York City, for instance, I see how busy their schedules are. And a lot of times being able to have those remote meetings where it's, you know, they can, they they don't have to really prepare in a way when they're seeing someone face to face, you know, they can get online, they can talk to you, get the meat of everything that they need to get from you and that kind of exchange, and then they can continue with their schedule. So I think it's so great that you have that capability of being able to even help people remotely, because I, I think that's just, And that's an added bonus. I really do.
1: It is. It is. And and it gives you still, again, I think sometimes, you know, this is human resources after all They, they need to see a face and they need to be able to interpret the visual cues and see a level of empathy and authenticity and, you know, be able to just connect. And then, you know, likewise I can see their faces and see when they might be in distress or maybe have some skepticism about a statement I'm making or be able to marry up what I'm saying with, 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 you know, the, the expressions on my face, because sometimes I think a phone conversation, there could be some, some nuances that are lost. It's like you hear what a person is saying and you hear the emotion in it, but you miss the opportunity to really sort of see their facial expressions so that you can get the full interpretation of the message that they're trying to impart. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy, excited about the existence of all the great technology we have now to be able to still, you know, connect with people in a human way and and help them solve their problems and still feel like, you know, it's not a chat room. it, it, it It's not a chat bot. It is a human being really talking to you about what your issue is and helping you figure out the best way to navigate that. So.
0: That is wonderful now, this was so great that I would love to have you back for a part two sometime in the future, and her nail. How would people get a hold of you, whether it's social media, website, any email address, anything like that? How would people get a hold of you?
1: Cesar, this has been really fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity that you've offered me to be able to talk about some of these issues because I recognize that there are challenges for both the human resources professional and for the internal clients that they serve. So I really, really thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. So, you know, if people are interested in, in my work and my business, they can go to liftworklearn.com. And, you know, so I can be readily found on that website. And if they're interested in having a conversation with me, they can drop me an email at Dora, D-O-R-A, at Live, Work, Learn. And and happy to offer an initial consultation about whatever issue they might be facing. And here's where I stand as well, Cesar. You know, if I have a conversation with someone who might be a potential client and I don't have the tool in my toolkit to be able to assist them with the issue that they're dealing with at the time, I have a, a very large network of professionals that I partner with, and other people who are highly skilled and have high subject matter expertise, and happy to provide referrals to someone if I don't feel like I can provide them, you know, with the outcomes that they're looking for, the services that they need. But certainly, you know, I make it my business to make sure that, again dealing with the person who you are either on the other side of the phone with or the Zoom with or across the table from, making sure that I'm focused on them and them only in terms of what their immediate needs are and and how is the best way to meet that need, whether it's me or one of my other, you know, amazing colleagues like you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and everyone. That is Dora Daniel. And we'll see you next time on Business Politics 318.